tonight I am so excited to be bringing back my wonderful friend, my dear friend, Steve Fan, Chief of Interpretation at Camp Nelson National Memorial. Steve, how are you doing, buddy? I'm good, my friend. Good to see you, John. Uh, it's always a pleasure to join you, my friend. I know we were just talking before this thing started that while it's been two years since obviously the pandemic started and, well, you know, you were kind of the lead on and doing a lot of these virtual programs. And so it feels like a lifetime ago, but it's always good to connect with you. I guess the last time we did this, I was in Washington, D.C. And so now I'm in a brand new part of a country at a brand new National Park Service unit. So uh, always a pleasure to be with you, my friend. Yeah, man, it's been a while. And and just like you said, uh, 2020 seems like 10 years ago. And uh, our, our concept of time has totally changed. Oh, definitely. You know, and it, it's hard to imagine that two years have passed. Obviously, you know, I think people have experienced so much uh, good and bad, of course. Um, the world's changed in many ways, right? Um, but I think having these really important, pertinent conversation is what uh, the Tattooed Historian is all about, right? That's what we do as historians. And so looking forward to chatting tonight. I know I've always enjoyed our conversations. I actually was just kind of going through my phone and I, I saw the photo of us at Gary Owen when we were kind of chatting yeah. for that one time, you know? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. oh my gosh, yeah. that was, what was that, like 2018, I think? That was, maybe 2019. That was 19. That was 19. 19. Okay. Yeah. 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 But, oh my gosh, it goes by quick. And so I guess one of the things I do really appreciate about technology is, you know, I've only, I've always actually been a droid user, but you know, the past couple of years I've had this iPhone and it always pops up memories. You know me, I take a lot of photos. Right. So it's kind of funny to see these photos pop up over the, you know, the past several years. And, um, you know, there's, a, there's several of us as we've, you know, of me and you, as we kind of cross paths and, and work together at different sites, you know? So, yeah. um, yeah, well, you know, here I am in, uh, Lexington, Kentucky, about 20 miles South, uh, North, excuse me, of Camp Nelson National Monument. That's awesome. You know, your, 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 your journey has been amazing. If I dare say so, you know, you talk about my brand and what we've done. I, I'm, I'm thinking about what you've done. You've done some amazing things and you've helped bring history to life and make it accessible for so hundreds and thousands of people, honestly. And uh, you've you've touched so many people through that historical curiosity. You know, you've hit that button so many times with people. And that's why I admired you. And I still do. Obviously, uh, you know, it's one of those things that you did that in Washington. And now you're you're transferring that to a new duty location. What was it like for you with your experience in the defenses of Washington and, and then transferring out there or transferring your knowledge and your know-how of how to reach new people out there to, to Kentucky? Well, that's a really great question, my friend. And, you know, I think I, I know I'm sure a lot of viewers are our are, are, are friends, you know, or colleagues that have hung out with us on battlefields and in different places like that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're friends on social media. Uh, I'll tell you, John, it, it was a hard decision to leave Washington, D.C. You know, as, as you know, I think as a lot of the viewers know, I, I love my time in the defenses of Washington. It was an incredible experience to really help build that regional program up, get people interested and excited about the defenses of Washington. Um, it, it had to be a special place for me to leave D.C., right? Obviously, you know, the food, the culture, the diversity, it was just a special place. And then history-wise, you know, um, I – I love being an hour and a half away from Gettysburg and Antietam and close to Richmond and all these civil war sites and historic sites around us. But I was kind of ready for a new challenge as well. Right. And I, I think you're right. You made this great point. You know, my experience with the defenses, imagine that we do have those earthworks still around these cultural resources. But for me, especially in an urban landscape like D.C., you know, a lot of the forts were gone, but the stories were still there. Right. 
And it was really about engaging the community on these stories. Uh, I always talk about those layers of history underneath the surface, especially of a modern landscape, right? And so that was kind of my focus with the Defenses of Washington was really engaging in the stories. And I'll, and I'll say this as well, John, you know, obviously we had the Battle of Fort Stevens in DC, you know, the light two day battle in July of 64, but we also had like four years of intense, like complicated human interaction that was the Civil War in Washington, DC. And that's what we have at Camp Nelson as well. And so when I had the opportunity to be on a detail here, actually, as the chief of interp, the first chief of interp from January until May of last, uh, January to May of last year, uh, we're literally forging a, a new path, you know, a new beginning for this National Park Service unit. And you know, the national significance of this site is the African-American experience. A lot of the stuff I did in D.C. So I thought it was a really good fit. Um, I'm glad I came out here for four months. Uh, this was a county site, by the way, John, for about 20 years. So there's been a lot of work done here. Wow. Uh, Jessamine County, uh, this is where the park is at. It's in it's in Nicholasville, which is in Jessamine County. Uh, they've basically run this as a county site for about 20 years. They built the visitor center and another like library um, that's a replicated barracks, U.S. military barracks. They put the trail system in, the interpretive waysides. The, the, hmm. the chief historian here actually was, is a, is, he's actually become a really good friend of mine. And he's, the, he's an archaeologist by trade. His name is Dr. Steve McBride. Um, and he did so much incredible work here, surveys, uh, excavations, writing. He did all the interpretive waysides and the museum exhibits, right? He's become really... Uh, one of my mentors and great friends, but he's also been uh, a great support system, you know, support reference person for the park. And so, you know, there was already a foundation built here. So when this became a National Parks unit in 2018, uh, you know, we've been here really since 2020 when full when full time staff was on hand to kind of build it up from there. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you can you imagine building a brand new National Park site that's a Civil War site um, in Kentucky, you know, which had very, you know, it was it was conditionally tied to the union, but, you know, supported uh, slavery, right? Um, there were just so many complexities in Kentucky that I thought it was a great fit to come here. And, um, you know, we're a very small park with a small staff, but, um, you know, we've got big ideas and we've got very inspired people. So, um, yeah, you know, that experience in DC, I think is, um, provided me with the tools and kind of insight to do the same thing uh, in Kentucky. I know obviously it's a different place, but, you know, we're still um, trying to share these stories. That's amazing. And, and, and you're you're building the reputation of this park, this brand new park in the middle of a pandemic. And and that had to be a challenge in itself because those who already have the foundational uh, deals already done, like a, like an Antietam or like a somewhere like that, they've already been known. This is a brand new park as of 2018 under the National Park Service auspices. And then 2020, like you say, when you're going full bore and then all of a sudden we get slammed with the pandemic. Uh, did that push you to do, you've already done this at DC, but did that push you to do even more as far as uh, online outreach for the park? Because we have this kind of, uh, for a while, we weren't even physically together. And now you have to think about things in a different way. Yeah, definitely, John. And just kind of like what you do, you know, uh, I mean, we're on four different platforms tonight, right? And so you can imagine when I when I got here in January, there was only four Park Service staff on hand uh, and two were permanent, including the superintendent. But me and the facility manager, we were on detail. So we were only here temporary, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Temporarily. And so 
one of the things that we talk about all the time at the park is building capacity, right? And so at that point, the visitor center wasn't uh, open yet. As I said, there was a visitor center here because we didn't have any staff and we were also renovating the building as well. So it's interesting you asked that, right? Because, you know, you being a Civil War historian and I had all my colleagues and friends are like, man, you, you get to talk about all these stories. What type of programs are you developing at Camp Nelson? I'm like, we're actually just like, trying to put new bathrooms in right now, right? New <laughs> toilets, right? right. Uh, we literally, there was a wall when you first walked into the visitor center, we took the wall down, put a brand new front desk in, right? And it was really cool to make that decision, even with the front desk, right? Cause that was like the concentration point, the whole focal point when people walk into the visitor center. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we had an option of making it um, like spending a certain amount of money on it. And it, it wouldn't have been the best quality. And they were like, let's just, let's spend the money, right? Um, Cause we know we're making, foundational decisions that will affect the park for decades right and so we understood you know we so we kind of thought about that like yeah let's make this right you know so mm -hmm. new front desk and you know painted the walls put in hardwood floors and my big thing john i had to hire staff and so when i was on here for four months uh last year my big thing was hiring staff we hired a permanent park ranger and then i hired like three or four interns if i recall and the funny thing is, ironically, they started after I went back to D.C. So I, I left in May when my detail was over. And you can imagine, I, I kind of had like hardcore FOMO. You know, I was totally missing out. I'm like, oh, my gosh, we helped, you know, bringing these people in. And the visitor center reopened in mid-June and I wasn't there. But obviously, it was a very proud moment for all of us. And we've just building it from there. But that said, John, I think you make a great point. I was able to do other things while I was there. Obviously, we're hiring staff and making these decisions about the visitor center, but kind of doing outreach as well, right? And so, you know, we had um, these youth organizations come in and do volunteer work uh, within the park, including earthwork restoration, you know, which I'm really excited about, of course. There are a system of earthworks right. here. And then I launched the, the Facebook page and at uh, the beginning of February of 2020 and kind of watched that grow from there. And then... We also did a really a really cool collaborative video. Um, there were 15 uh, U.S. Army regiments organized uh, at Camp Nelson, John, uh, eight African-American United States Colored Troops, seven uh, white regiments, mostly from Kentucky and East Tennessee. But uh, we wanted to do a really unique program, uh, a virtual video, right, uh, following the footsteps of the 114th and the 116th USCT because they go from Camp Nelson to serving in Virginia with the Army of the James. So they're around Petersburg, they're around Richmond, and one of them, the 116th, is involved in the Appomattox campaign and will be there on July, uh, April 9th when Lee surrenders his army, right? Hmm. And so listen to this. We did um, we started at Camp Nelson, and then we went to Richmond National Battlefield Park. So we had uh, one of our colleagues shoot a video there, um, a part of the video there, and then we went to Petersburg National Battlefield, and so, you know, we had a couple of Rangers do some things there. And then we ended at Appomattox Courthouse. So we incorporated four parks in one video, right? Wow. So it was kind of one of our, as you mentioned, John, these parks are well-known and well-established, right? And so we wanted to kind of cling on to their name and their popularity, you know, um, and say it kind of build our name up as well. So mm -hmm. one of the big things I'm working on, John, and our staff is, and I think about this all the time, is branding. You get this with your career, with the things that you've done with the Tattooed Historian, um, it's really interesting, even in the Civil War kind of world, not a lot of people know about Camp Nelson, right? Um, even me, I mean, I, I knew a little bit about it, but I just didn't know how complex and right dynamic this site was from a military logistical standpoint, um, 
operational command and control, but also obviously the refugee experience, the African-American experience, emancipation, all that stuff. Um, but here, there's a national cemetery right behind um, south of the park, and it's called Camp Nelson National Cemetery. And I, you know, it's directly connected to the military camp. Uh, mm -hmm. It was actually started um, during the Civil War at Camp Nelson. So it's a part of the original camp. And it's interesting, though, when we get calls during the week, people ask for the cemetery, right? Um, not knowing that it, that's actually run by the VA and our site's run by the National Park Service. So mm. that's one of our big things, John, is branding. We want people to know that it's a National Park site in central Kentucky and that there's other sites around as well that do the Civil War. So even an even newer park, which is about an hour and a half south of us, is Mill Springs Battlefield National Monument. And uh, talk, they don't, they literally have a superintendent and like a lot of part-time staff. And so they're really still building. They're behind us. And there's more established parks like uh, Abraham Lincoln Birthplace, so which uh, is another national park site. So those are the three big national park sites. But there's also Richmond, Battlefield, Perryville, Battlefield, Munfordville. Um, there's a lot of stuff in Lexington. You know, Mary Todd Lincoln's house that she grew up is here. Uh, her family's buried in the cemetery in Lexington, right? So mm -hmm. I see this, John, as like a Civil War corridor, um, kind of heritage area, you know, very similar to Virginia, the Carolinas, parts of the South. Um, you know, Kentucky's always kind of been on the periphery of the Civil War, but I, I think it's our goal across the state to really amplify uh, the profile of these sites. Yeah, and it sounds like uh, one of the major keys to the development of the site has been something I've been preaching for years, which is collaboration. Absolutely. Know? And, and you, you're not taking visitors away from anyone where else. You're working with others to make sure they go to both sites or four sites or whatever to get the whole experience. Yeah, and that's the big thing with us as well, John. And, you know, so we've made it really a, a focus of ours to go out and do outreach with the community, like genuine connections with the community. I'll give you an example. Like today, I had an appointment earlier in the morning, but on my way down to the park, I stopped by Jessamine County Public Library because we're going to be doing some programming with them, collaborations um, at their site, but they're, they're also coming out to our site as well. So we uh, will be um, at the Black History program they have next uh, the following Saturday. But we also are thinking about doing a genealogy research day at the park, you know, and they've got this mobile like library van that they're going to bring out there. Right. Um, and then other, you know, because I think, you know, we get so insular in the park service and people just want to work with other National Park Service sites. But, you know, I've got to know the site manager at Richmond and he's showed up to our winter lecture series already. He shares all of our programs. Right. And vice versa. Uh, we've gotten to know the Perryville, uh, Perryville Battlefield uh, staff and they're managed by the state. Right. So on all these levels. Right. We're you're right, John. Collaboration, really relationship building is critically important to us. Uh, and then most, you know, one of the things that we really focus on, of course, is, as I said, the African-American experience here is it's nationally significant uh, for Camp Nelson. And so we've been very proactive as as much as possible, you know, with our staffing to connect with the African-American communities around uh, the park in Jessamine County and beyond. So mm -hmm. uh, I think we've had some success with that and we will continue to build on that moving forward. That's awesome. It's fantastic. And and I went I put the link in the chat, everybody on Facebook and YouTube for the site. And I, and please go over there and you'll see the socials at the bottom. Please follow all the socials as well. When I first uh, heard that you were going there and I checked out the site or after you've been there a little while, I checked out the site. And the story is just phenomenal. 
of this site. And, and there's so many different things that can be interpreted in it, you know, uh, through through the primary source materials and through the documentation and, and all kinds of stuff. Uh, tell us about the founding of the camp and 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 how what you've learned about that era uh, from being there. Yeah, that's a great question, John. As I said, you know, Kentucky is such a complex place, you know, in regards to the Civil War era, of course, it was a slave holding state. It was a border state, as I think a lot of us know, um, you know, from our understanding of the Civil War. Um, and so it, you know, remained in the Union. Um, but there was uh, a lot of operation, military operations that happened here uh, in 1862 that led to the biggest battle in Kentucky, which was Perryville, which was ultimately a, a federal victory, a tactical victory in many ways as Bragg's army retreated from uh, the area. But, you know, this state is really interesting in the surrounding region, actually, because there's um, there's pro-Confederates and there's a lot of pro-Unionists, you know, and they're living in these kind of weird zones, right? And so, you know, Cam Nelson is established because of East Tennessee. There's a large Unionist population in East Tennessee that have been under Confederate occupation since the beginning of the war. And so the federal armies, the U.S. military has been struggling to liberate East Tennessee. And it finally comes down to um, really the summer of 1863 when this happens, just a month after Gettysburg or so. Uh, the camp is established in late spring, early summer of 1863 by the U.S. Army of the Ohio, believe it or not, under the command of Ambrose Burnside, of all people, right? <laughs> yeah, he had yeah. Fredericksburg, obviously, and then he had the Mud March in January 63. And then he gets sent out to take command of the Department of the Ohio. The Army's in the field. is, And he actually brings his Ninth Corps with him. So he's got the Ninth Corps, and then they organize the 23rd Corps, which is, um, you know, they, they've grouped up together as the Army of the Ohio. And he needs... Uh, a supply base, a supply depot. And so they choose this site, John, about 20 miles south of uh, Lexington, Kentucky, right in the middle of the bluegrass, uh, central Kentucky. And, you know, I think if the viewers go and check out our site, you'll see different maps and things like that. Uh, de definitely check out our website, our Facebook page. We have a lot of great information on there. Mm -hmm. This was strategically chosen because of the natural defense here uh, and the road system. It's off right off the highway here. We call it US 27. It was called the Lexington Vanville Turnpike. So there was a rail system from Louisville to Lexington to Nicholasville, and then they'd have to take wagons down to this new site. But it's defended on three sides by the Kentucky River and then Hickman Creek. And then, as I mentioned, they built some fortifications to protect the northern section of the park, uh, excuse me, of the camp. But, John, this grows to be one of the largest supply depots in the entire country. I mean, 4,000 acres, 300 wooden structures, workshops, barracks, mess halls, um, you know, corrals for thousands of horses. They even had a steam-powered uh, water pump that pumped up water 300 feet from the Kentucky River wow. into a reservoir at the camp that held tens of thousands of acres. And then they piped it um, to all these workshops. It was fire suppression. It wasn't even drinking water, right? Mm. Um, so absolutely spectacular. And the Interesting thing is, you know, Burnside comes through Camp Nelson in August of 63, and then he launches his campaign into East Tennessee, uh, and he successfully um, relieves or captures Knoxville, and that will remain in federal hands until the remainder of the war. So you have that, you know, the logistical side, as I said, the military operation side. Um, interestingly enough, though, truly at the beginning of the establishment of the camp is the African-American experience because... Listen to this. We are in a slave state, right? Mm -hmm. Protected by the Constitution. 
the U.S. Army had to impress enslaved people to build road systems, expand the road system, and build fortifications at Camp Nelson. And so they compensated slaveholders for their, you know, the use of their human property. Um, so that was kind of the beginning. And we know hundreds, if not thousands, were involved with this. Interestingly enough, John, in 1864, we've already determined, one of my staff members did the research, about 100 at least that we know of that we've identified of those men returned to Camp Nelson and enlisted with the United States Colored Troops. Wow. So incredibly powerful, right? Yeah. Um, and, I, and I'll tell you this, John, you know, we, we know about the United States Colored Troops, especially starting in 1863 at the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, which was void and not in effect in Kentucky. But really, you know, the, the forward momentum had been started and uh, there was a lot of resistance by Kentuckians with the enlistment of black soldiers. But by 1864, um, you know, all the chips are in the middle of the table for the Lincoln administration and the War Department. And so they'll start they'll start recruiting black men here. The, the majority of them are enslaved from Kentucky and over 10,000 will be organized in regiments at Camp Nelson. It's one of the largest recruitment camps for black soldiers in the entire country. Wow. This sounds like a working city the way this is laid out. It, it's probably one uh, it, it's probably one of the largest if you consider it a city. Yes. One of uh, the cities in Kentucky. Yeah, actually it's funny you say that because uh, cuz you know, on days when there was a lot of troops here, certainly in August of 63 when the army of the Ohio was passing through Camp Nelson, it's probably the second largest city in Kentucky after yeah. Louisville. It's funny you say that cuz we do mention that in our programs and I don't think people realize the, the scale and scope of Camp Nelson. That's one of the things that we uh, we try to communicate and you know illustrate with a lot of the images. Fortunately, there's over there's about 45 historic images that were taken of the camp, mostly of the structures that were here, right? So we're fortunate to have that. And I'd mention you you mentioned the the resource material, you know, things that we uh, you know primary source material and things like that. Actually, our biggest resource here, John, is archaeological. Because all the buildings, everything was taken down in 1866. So 90, 95% of the park is archaeological. As I said, though, fortunately, you know, the county had this wonderful archaeologist historian, and he did 30 years worth of research, surveys, and excavations. So we know uh, where these sites are at, some of the things he found, including, you know, I'm thinking about our friend Dave Wilson from Victorian Studio. So there was a large sutler shop here that he was excavating. Uh, which was really close to what we call the kind of the heart of the camp, the industrial center with all the workshops. Uh, and they ended up finding something that was not on the map. And it was a photography studio. They literally had one at the camp. Um, and so, yeah, and we find out who this person was. Well, they determined who this person was. He was from Lexington. And he took photos of mostly soldiers, black and white soldiers at Camp Nelson. So, um, you know, we found we have found this stuff from the ground. And so we've determined you know, a, a lot of this from our interpretation of the uh, of the cultural resources that we have found through excavations. Wow. So so uh, I want to thank everyone for joining us. And Ronald's got it nailed on the head to lose Kentucky is nearly the same as to lose the whole game. Indeed. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's that was the quote I was trying to think of, actually. And I couldn't I, it didn't pop in my head quick enough. Ronald got got it uh, with those archaeological digs uh that's really fascinating to me because i would think when they tear down now obviously they're not going to get everything but sure when you when you tear down a camp like that in 1866 you're going to try to reuse some of the those materials right because it's it is you know a lesser populated area let's say than like new york city sure. or, or anything like that so 
is it just uh, you're going to look for the foundations like we usually do in archaeological yeah. and then and then plot things out or how yeah. how do we are there camp maps or or you just well, you line yes. up photos like we did with like Fresnito stuff yeah a, a little bit of everything to be honest and as I, I mentioned um, we had a um, uh, winter lecture series uh, the first Saturday of the month with Dr. Uh, Stephen McBride. He, as I said, he's the archaeologist expert that's been doing all the work here. Mm -hmm. And it was incredibly fascinating. I mean, he told us stuff that none of us in the Park Service knew. And it just came from, you know, years and years of doing research uh, and then th this field work as well. So let me give you an example um, in regards to the things that he was able to determine through, you know, his excavations. And so one of the cool aspects you know, he had this PowerPoint and he's like, these are the questions that we're asking and we're hoping to determine and answer these questions by doing our surveys. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I have to mention, John, you know, when the soldiers, when the black men came to enlist at, with the U.S. Army at Camp Nelson, they were joined by their families. So um, who mm -hmm. had no status. Actually, they had, their status was still as enslaved people. Um, but, you know, they were considered refugees. So the army did not know what to do with them. And even though their men enlisted uh, and self-emancipated, that status was not granted to their families. And so they basically became refugees and squatted at Camp Nelson, right? And they're, they basically set up refugee camps and huts uh, around, you know, some of the military structures. Unfortunately, uh, starting in August of 1864, the U.S. Army uh, issued these expulsion orders. And it's from the commandant of the camp. And he just didn't want to deal with them, right? Um, you know, he wanted to focus on military matters and, you know, the refugees in his mind were a burden. And so I didn't want to feed them. I don't want to provide, you know, health and medical care for them. So I want to get them out. So they literally drove these people out by the bayonet. Wow. Uh, the worst incident happened in November of 1864 when 400 were driven from the camp, including John, family members of black soldiers. 106 at least that we know of died because of exposure before the order was rescinded. Obviously, it's the darkest episode of Camp Nelson. We actually did a special um, luminaria to honor the people you know who, who lost their lives with this. But the, one of the, re the reason why I bring that up, John, is because not only did they drive them out from camp, they burned their huts down. And so Dr. McBride determined that um, he was able he, he talks about soil. Right. Mm -hmm. And I saw I, I think the visit or uh, your guests would love to hear this because um, and it, this really clicked with me. And he said, you know, in archaeology, you know, people want to come out and they want to find objects. Right. Mm -hmm. He's like, for archaeologists, we're looking at the soil, you know, the difference in the soil, what we can find in the soil. And what he found out is, you know, some huts were just burned by themselves because they could find the burn like nails and things like that. Right. But right. what he did find, uh, which makes more sense, was there was a huge collection of burned nails. Uh, and he's like, you know what that was? They stacked up the huts and they set one big fire. So we know, uh, and there were, or there were also, John, there were jewelry, uh, jewelry and artifacts from the enslaved people, them, the refugees themselves that were um, African, um, you know, inspired um, mm -hmm. in regards to the way they, they were, or they're, they're or, ornamental, right? And right. so they were determined this was actually the refugee camp, the original refugee camp. And he was able to determine that by um, seeing the burned wood, burned mm -hmm. soil, which became soil, and then the burned objects like the nails and other uh, jewelry and items like that, right? And you can imagine all of us were like, oh my gosh, yeah. had no idea. And, you know, just, and so he was able to answer some questions. I'd also say, John, uh, the refugees ate 
had a different diet from the soldiers, right? The soldiers were eating, as you know, more beef products, of course, and like, you know, flour and hardtack and things like that. Um, it, it appears that the refugees were basically foraging for their own food, trading and things like that. So you saw more pork and other uh, poultry items like chickens and because by the bones, right? So he found all these different bones as well. And then I mentioned one last thing, John, uh, there was, a, you could see the, you know, even in war, there's this pretty dramatic trade network that continues, right? And so mm -hmm. that sutler shop being there, he found dozens of sardine cans that came from France, believe it or not, <laughs> France. Wow. Yeah, and he found the company that made them, and it's incredible. So, you know, these, these were sealed cans, and the soldiers, are, there was a lot of civilians at the camp as well that, you know, did work there and things like that. You know, whoever bought the can, they would cut it open they would eat the sardine and they just chucked them on the ground <laughs> and so yeah, yeah, so yeah. it was people's trash you know that just piled up over the years uh you know in the soil and stuff and he was able to find that stuff so uh as you can imagine it, it's absolutely spectacular so yeah wow. what has that been like steve with uh dark moments like that like the expulsion order and things like that what has that been like from an interpretive standpoint uh how do you how do you confront those things uh because you don't you don't want to hide it Right. at all it, it's history good bad or ugly and and exactly how do you how do you uh utilize that in an interpretive sense to tell the truth about those kind of policies well that's a really great point john and um that's a great question and that's something that you know we um work on all the time here you know in regards to our social media posts our website articles that talk about these experiences and then when we do public programming we've we've had one major public program and it was uh, the Luminario, right, um, in right. remembrance of the people that died because of the expulsion. And, you know, we put out 102 luminaries for the lives that were lost. And then we put two additional ones as well for the people that died trying to make it to camp, right, the ones that died from perhaps previous expulsions. But this gets back to your other uh, earlier point, John, collaboration, mm. right? We wanted to have the community involved not only in the event, the planning of the event, and I really took that from, you know, Marvin Greer, you know, the Hannibal Guard, um, great historian. Um, I remember him saying he wrote a post about this. He's like, you know, because they're a very dynamic African-American living history group, as you know, you know, represent USCT and all these um, other units of black soldiers. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know, we often get called out to do events and things like that. But, you know, we're never sometimes we're they don't even want to compensate us right they don't want us a part of the planning process uh, he's like we need to be a part of that and i'm like that always stuck with me right mm -hmm. and um so you know the superintendent and i we met with community members including african-american uh church members uh you know pastors that were in the area um this african-american woman that has really done tremendous work uh and she's become a good friend of ours uh and she's kind of a representative of uh what we call the care council we actually just had a meeting with them from the entire county, which includes educators, uh, people that work in the library, right? People that are just involved in the community, right? And so we brought her in and uh, she came to the park and we're like, hey, we're gonna do this event and we'd appreciate if you had any insight or any ideas and things like that. And so John, we were just gonna do the luminary, right? We're, we're gonna have the candles lit up, you know, in the bags um, and probably do some sort of, you know, formal interpretation. And right. she was the one that said, this should be a walk. You know, she's like, you should get people walking out there, you know, and we had this event in November and it was, it was pretty cold, as you can imagine. And obviously we didn't want to replicate, you know, there's no way you can replicate the horrors of that scene, you know, but it was in that right setting. Right. 
And so she's the one that suggested uh, the memorial walk. And then she also said, you know, you need to include some music, um, some gospel music, right? And so she invited some of her church members out and they sang uh, gospel music, uh, music from the African-American church, even from that period as well, uh, you know, uh, slavery music in many sense, you know? And so to get them uh, involved uh, and very much involved in the planning process and uh, the execution of it was very, very special for us. And mm -hmm. so that's one of the reasons, uh, you know, we did that that way. And now uh, we'd love to take, you know, credit for doing the walk and then the singing. Uh, but that was all that was all these uh, these church members and these other organizations. Right. Um, and so that was that was a big uh, experience for us. You know, a very um, important you know, provide a lot of insight for us moving forward. Right. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you this, Sean. I mean, I, I think you understand that, you know, and it's so important to collaborate, but we're not shy about these stories either. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, this is. Um, you know, it's one of those things where it's kind of very interesting. Sometimes there's not a happy ending, right? Um, yeah, even for all the uh, African-American men that enlisted and were self-emancipated here, uh, there were hundreds that tried to come to the camp or other camps around Kentucky that were murdered on the way to enlist and self-emancipate, right? And obviously the status of their families did not change until literally the end of the war, March of 1865 is when... Congress passed legislation emancipating the, the families of black soldiers, right? And then I'd also mention, John, I think people forget this because we, I know Juneteenth is a very important federal holiday. And I, I know people celebrate the Emancipation Proclamation, of course, as they should. Uh, there were still enslaved people in Kentucky and Delaware until the passage of the 13th Amendment in December of 1865, long after the Civil War, right? Mm -hmm. Or months after the major hostilities ended. So, those are the conversations that we're trying to have with people. Right. And right. as I mentioned, John, um, people are like, man, where did all those buildings go? Gone. Mm -hmm. Spring, summer of 1866, gone. And mm -hmm. so you have all these African-Americans that were on site. What happens to them? Because in 1865, they actually create the home for colored refugees here, which includes and you know, check out our images on our website and on our social media pages. And it was wooden houses there was a there was a, a hospital uh there were schools you know and there was white teachers that came down from the north to educate the these uh, formerly enslaved people right? right and all that was taken down uh so then more so these people were once again displaced right and um so this idea of having this black community in central kentucky it just didn't happen um there was a small group of mostly former soldiers and former refugees that um purchased some property west of where the main camp was at. And um, that became the descendant community. And we actually have some acreage over there as a part of the National Monument. Uh, and there are, John, there are still direct descendants of USCT soldiers that are that live in that community. We call it the Hall community. So, yeah, so I think, you know, there's, there's a lot to take from this site, right? There's a lot of very sad, dark, tragic moments. But obviously, I think there's things that, you know, can inspire people as well, or especially continue the conversation. I think that's critically important. Right. That, that's fantastic because I was going to ask you about uh, the demographics of the region. Did any of those descendants stay stick around after the war, which you, which you answered that eloquently. And also the fact that we as historians often have our hearts broken when we read about the past. It's never, it's hardly ever a jolly occasion to read about conflict and read about right. times of conflict or times of civil strife. Uh, that's why we continue to want to learn about it so you don't repeat 
that's, it's, it's, you know, it's never a thing where you just study history to be happy all the time. You wish you could be, but uh, most of the time you're going to be like let down at what some people have done in the past, inspired by what others have done. Absolutely. And, and the Camp Nelson story touches all those bases, it seems like, where you see some people who could have done better and you see some people who were doing their best and trying to understand what the idea of freedom is and, uh, I th and, and the idea of what uh, America was supposed to be to certain people. It's just a it's a fascinating story that's almost a timeless story. You know, it's something we've been talking about since the, the colonies. Absolutely. You know, since the founding of the country in many ways. Right. And that conversation continues to this day. And as we approach the 250th of the founding of this country, you know, this I think these conversations are even more pertinent right now. You know, they're relevant. And so one of the things I actually have written in my office is relevancy. Right. And that's what, mm -hmm. you know, I like myself to focus on and my staff as well, you know, sharing relevant stories, uh, making this park relevant to, you know, visitors from all over the country and world that come out to the site. Right. And so right. that's what, uh, what's we're, what, what, what we're aiming to do, John. So I appreciate right. your insight as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That, it's, it's fantastic. It really is. I want to get a couple comments and questions. Yeah, please. Uh, Ronald's back again with uh, Dr. McBride published in the Smithsonian is find a bottles of bear grease used for grooming soldiers hair. That's, that's right. That's cool. And uh, they also, they also, um, you know, for guys with lighter hair, they also had dye so they could, you know, so they could get their hair lighter for the, for the images they took at the photography shop at Camp Nelson, oh, which wow. he shared with us the other day. I almost forgot about, yeah, just dozens of glass bottles of different, everything from like beer to wine, of course, to chemicals that they use in the Photoshop and things like that. Yeah, you could find everything in. That's yeah. cool. David has a great question. Was that event filmed, Steve, that you did for? Um, I see Mr. Scar's comment um, about the, uh, I think he's talking about the expulsion. Uh, we yes. filmed, uh, uh, it was a pretty long event, uh, Mr. Scar. It was almost two hours long. Uh, we did we did film it, but we're still in the process of editing that. So um, just give us a little bit more time. I would suggest, sir, that you go to our park website. We have an entire section about the expulsion. Uh, just go on to learn more about the park. Um, and then, um, and then, um, yeah, go to the history and culture section and you're going to find it. So actually, you know, John, if you don't mind, I'm going to put it in the, uh, put in the chat there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll throw it up there. Uh, I placed the park site in chat, but I can place anything you want in chat as well. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that, my friend. Yeah. Um, but yeah, here we go. Um, John, if you could share that. Absolutely. That takes them directly to the, and you can see the luminaries we did uh, as well. Okay, I have it here. Um, and I'll get another question here out of, let me get back comments. So many buttons to push, my friends. So many buttons. Uh, Garrett is in here. Here we go, Garrett. Steve, like Freedman's Village in Arlington, was Camp Nelson and the later sites where these self-emancipated individuals become under management of the Bureau of Freedmen, Refugees, and Abandoned Lands? Yes. And this is uh, what you were talking about, John. This is the disappointing part. Um the Freedmen's Bureau accelerated the closing of the park. I mean, of, of the camp, actually. And, you know, a lot of these people didn't want to leave. They had nowhere to go. Right. And so especially um, since the government allocated so much um, manpower and funds to build, especially the home for colored refugees. Right. Which include dozens of cottages. I said all these other structures like schools, a, a kitchen and also um, a hospital as well. But as you can imagine, uh, Garrett, 
the you know people in central Kentucky did not want this black community forming in this area here, and so um, Camp Nelson was so slowly dismantled beginning in 1866, uh, beginning of the year, and by the summer it was gone. Can you imagine that? Every single one of these structures was taken down, right? Wow. And so, thankfully, there were some forward-thinking people that were involved with this, including a reverend who started, founded Berea College in Kentucky named John G. Fee. Uh, he was an abolitionist, and him and his wife basically purchased a lot of land uh, where the home for Colorado refugees was, and then they later sold parcels of land to those um, former refugees that wanted to stay in that area. And mm -hmm. so that's the descendant community that we have today. Uh, relatively small, as I said. Uh, the park owns about seven acres on that side of the highway, west of the US 27, in the Hall community. And we also, that includes the Fee Memorial Church, which was the second church that was built there, I think in 1911. Mm -hmm. um, but I'll tell you this, Garrett, the majority of people left. You know, They um, either returned back to where they're enslaved to do labor work. A lot of them went north and crossed the Ohio River into Ohio. Uh, listen to this. Some of them that we know that tried to stay around central Kentucky, it was just so hard in the post-war era to really make a living, right? And obviously, the racial animosity was just accelerated. So there was a group that left in the 1870s to go west um, to you know, start homesteads. The famous exodusters that think people have heard of starting in 1877, yep. you know, Nicodemus and all that, they were some of them came from Camp Nelson. Wow. So we also have a direct uh, connection to Nicodemus National, I believe, historic site or monument. Um, but that's a question. No, that's a great question. You know, a lot of people ask us, like, I can't believe they took everything down so quickly. It's like, yeah, that happened. And so I think unlike the defenses of Washington in D.C., as he mentioned, Freedom, Freedman's Village, mm -hmm. um, a lot of these African-Americans were able to kind of stay in that area and end up purchasing property. Right. Uh, the majority of the ones in uh, Camp Nelson had to had to go, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, Liz in the chat. Uh, Liz would absolutely want to know this question. I, I would like to know it from from a, a more generic standpoint sure liz is gone for the photography studio for obvious reasons because liz is into the photography uh so we could touch on that too but are there plans to over the years to come to start recreating any of the structures including great question um and i think um we're going to not necessarily you know we can't rebuild buildings in a sense in the park service anymore just because of the cost of it but that said um you know so there was a as I said, there was 300 structures here, wooden structures uh, for like the bakery, John. We want to set up like big flower barrels. You know, mm -hmm. um, the, the, the foundation of the is still there. Obviously, we're going to have very um, we're going to have new interpretive waste sides, including, I think, tactile stations that, you know, they're kind of 3D that you can touch and things like that. Uh, right. We have a lot of images, I said, of the camp. So those will be incorporated, of course. But Liz, I mean, I'd love to, you know, recreate any of the buildings, but. I think there's going to be symbolically some structures that go up. So you're going to see flower barrels for um, um, for the bakery, uh, for the prison. I'd love, to see, I'd love to see us to put up one of the guard towers, right? There were four guard mm. towers and this large, I guess, rectangle-ish or square. And so that might go up as well. Oh, let me share this. Okay. You know, everything. And so that's what I really enjoyed about being in this position, John, is, you know, I take on more responsibilities um, and, and do new things. Right. Including right. getting funding for projects. And, you know, me and my big cannons, uh, it looks like we're going to get two cannons at uh, two reproduction cannons um, at one of our sites. And so oh, I would also share. 
the county, uh, Dr. McBride excavated the site of, uh, of one of the forts here, actually. And he found the nails. He found the revetment post that uh, reinforced the walls. And the county rebuilt the fort. It's amazing. Wow. And so, yeah, and so it's been rebuilt. They've got the wooden platforms. And we're actually going to replace the wooden platforms and the revetments because they've eroded over the past 20 years. But we're going to have a 12-pound Napoleon and a 30-pound parrot rifle posted at the fort. So, yes, uh, there's a lot more coming. And then, obviously, we still have – oh, I'd also share for Liz and everyone else. There is one – I guess there's two historic structures, but only one from the Civil War – it's called the Oliver Perry House or the White House. Everyone sees it as you drive past the park or into the parking lot. Uh, it was used as officers' quarters during the Civil War. Um, there's going to be – we need major renovations, Sean. I mean, mm. you know, we're just doing stabilization so the building doesn't basically collapse on itself. But, um, you know, we did some – you know, we had to kind of seal the roof because there's a lot of leaks and water going in. Uh, we're actually – uh, gonna scrape off all the bad paint and just put a new paint job on it this summer. But we're also, you know, in the in 2000, and we're looking ahead, right? 2023, 24, 25, even 26, we got big projects in the works to, you know, renovate that. We're gonna interpret it as officers' quarters, but we're also, my friends, working on a new park film. We're also mm -hmm. working on new park exhibits and and then obviously new waysides as well. So. You can imagine for uh, us interp crazy people, this is amazing. Yeah. Right? It's such a unique opportunity. So, uh, and also as well, we've acquired more land. So we're developing trail systems as well. Wow. So there's going to be more trails going south of actually we're going through where the main heart of the camp, the industrial part is. And so John, I just can't reiterate how exciting this is. We're building literally a brand new national park. Right. And right. Um, it's incredibly exciting. And, you know, I think people come in, in this career, especially in the park service, people, you know, you work at a park or site for two or three years and you kind of move on. But I think for a lot of us here, we're going to be here a while because we have a lot to do. Yeah, this is this is years of under. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Probably a, at least a generation probably of this. I mean, you're you're at the forefront. You're on the front line. And the county has done so much already. They have. Right. But, but and, with and, the interpretive model, that's that's a generational thing where you're starting it, but it may not be over for a right. while. And I and I'd share, you know, it's as I said, um, one of the things that we say a lot, John, is often in the park, we say this is a first. Right. And let me give you an example. A couple of weeks ago, we had our first full staff employee meeting. That's the first time it's ever happened in the history of Camp Nelson, right? Which was incredibly exciting, right? Like, this is so cool. Right. Um, you know, we had our first education program uh, this past year, and then we got more coming up. You know, these first formal programs, all this stuff. It's just been really cool to do all these firsts in the park. And as you mentioned, you know, we're making decisions that will affect the park for decades, and we understand that, right? So we're, you know, we, we want to be forward thinking and, um, be very comprehensive in our approach to do this. Right. And so we're working with a lot of different people to do that. And I'd share as well, you know, other things that we're working on, I think things that we take for granted when we go to national park sites or even historic sites, right, John, the right. Unigrid, the park brochure, we're, we're literally doing that right now. Right. I'm, right. Uh, you know, I'm working on the text for that actually tomorrow. <laughs> uh, we, uh, I'm working on the draft for it tomorrow. And then I have a meeting with someone at the Harpers Ferry Center. Right. And so you can imagine, oh my gosh, my friend, there's just, this is, there's nowhere else I'd want to be right now, to be honest with you. So. No, I love it because you, I love interpretation. And so you're basically, you're molding this out of clay 
absolutely this beautiful piece of art over time it's not like it has to be done tomorrow like right. the whole thing it, it's it's yeah and and patience always prevails with it but you also want to try to touch as many bases as you can i've used that before but you want to you want to be able to check the boxes and keep some boxes available because absolutely. there's something else going to be written in later yeah and i'd say before we answer more questions you know yeah. it's um yeah, that's such a great point, you know, and I, I think, uh, you know, we're very cognizant of that. Right. And um, as I as I mentioned, you know, it's um, to to be engaged in this type of work is incredibly exciting because, you know, when you go to other parts that have been around for 50 up to 100 years, you know, they've got like an established culture, a way of doing things. Right. They've already had their first. Right. And you right. kind of kind of I guess kind of evolve and build in a certain way. But here you're right. This really is clay that we're molding with our own hands and. Oh my gosh, it's uh, it's exciting. So, what other questions do we have there, John? Uh, comments? We have, we have. Uh, let's see here. We have uh, that'd be some good Eagle Scout projects. Oh, absolutely. Oh, it, it's funny <laughs> he says that. We have a group from uh, AmeriCorps, uh, a bunch mm -hmm. of young people. Uh, they actually were here last year when I was on detail. And we did some earthwork restoration. They're coming back on Saturday, so we got some. Awesome. Earthwork stuff going on on Saturday. There you go. There you go. Uh, Kitty, yes, this will be, I guess you're talking about this one. This one will be available. And you have a friend whose ancestors were among the oh, refugee sorry. families. That's amazing. So I'm sorry. What was, what was that? Will this Zoom event be accessible? Late? Do you see it there, oh. Steve? For reviewing yeah. and sharing, I have a friend whose ancestors were among the refugee families. Oh, that's, my gosh. That's awesome. It, you definitely direct them to the website as well. Yeah. And um, if you could, um, put my email in the chat. Yes. I'd love to hear from that person uh, with the ancestor. That'd be incredible. Yes. I Thank can put you. that in there. Uh, um, yeah. Cause we have, um, you know, we know of uh, descendants of a lot of the soldiers, of course. Um, but, you know, obviously the refugees themselves, we don't know that much about um, unfortunately, but to have a, a descendant of a, a refugee would be something that we'd love to, to hear more about or hear from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that personal story and being able to connect families with their ancestors in that way is just tremendous, especially when it's when it's uh, refugees uh, and that kind of a thing where their story may not have been told before in the way you're going to be telling. Right. It. And that's, well, that's huge. Well, and I'd also mention, John, I think, you know, I think a lot of sites uh, and obviously historians have been talking about like contraband, you know, contraband camps. Right. Right. Um, you know, obviously enslaved people that came into federal lines. Uh, you know, were considered contraband of war, right? Property, because they were considered property by con by the Confederacy. Uh, this is not the case in Kentucky, which is really interesting, right? Because, you know, contrabands, uh, I know Garrett was talking about Freedman's Village. It's, and I saw this in the defenses of Washington, right? When enslaved people came in from Virginia, they were, you know, they were accepted in the federal lines. But if they came from Maryland, they it was like, oh, I don't know about this, you know, mm. because Maryland was a border state. It was not in rebellion, right? right. And, so I, I have a, you know, I had a lot of experience that reading a lot of accounts, especially from soldiers who experienced this and saw this on the ground in D.C. Um, that happens every single day in Kentucky. Right. And mm -hmm. so you've got these people that are self-emancipating or attempting to self-emancipate. Uh, they're not contrabands when they come to the federal camps. They're, they're refugees or they're fugitive slaves, I guess you could say, to be honest. I mean, technically they are. Um but by 1864, you know, the army, especially for if you're a, a fit and able man, we're going to recruit you in and then you're you're emancipated. But I think you make a great point, John. The status of the refugees was not cleared up until 1865. Yeah, it's it's, it's one of those uh, 
it's one of those stories that it just didn't have an end for so long where you, it, it wasn't defined. And right. uh, it was almost like commanders in the field could kind of go whichever direction they felt like going at the time until exactly else uh that ronald comes up with a great question too here before we uh, wrap up in a little bit Steve, yeah. you talk about the negative reactions of kentuckians when enrolling former slaves in early 1864 absolutely and it was profound how negative the reaction was it was so I actually went to this really cool Civil War presentation recently. It was about a Kentuckian soldier that became commander of the District of Columbia named Stephen Burbridge. And by the way, he's a native Kentuckian. He's a slaveholder, hmm. but he also enforced federal policy as well, especially the enforcement of the recruitment of black soldiers. So, <clears throat> Ronald, there was vehement protest from Kentuckians. Uh, there were a lot of white Kentuckian officers that resigned their commissions. And I... Hmm. Also, think about this. Kentucky voted for George McClellan. That's mm. how upset they were with emancipation. Okay. That's right. Um, so yeah. what I loved about this story, because you know, I, I had to steal this from him. <clears throat> there were conditional unionists. And that's why, you know, Kentucky was a border state because they were conditionally, they believed that staying in the union was the best way to preserve the institution of slavery. Uh, obviously, the war will change that. And so when you know, they were furious when Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, right? Even though it didn't affect Kentucky, they knew it was coming. Something was coming, right? And so when that happened, <clears throat> they're like, you know, we don't support Lincoln in the administration anymore. Uh, we're going to support George McClellan because he said he wasn't going to touch slavery, right? And um, there was unconditional unionists as well, right? The people mm -hmm. that's, including Stephen Burbridge, that said, uh, we, we have to persecute this war or prosecute this war, excuse me, any way we can. And if that means destroying slavery, <clears throat> we're going to do it. And then I'd also mention as well, Ronald, <clears throat> by 1864, due to emancipation especially, you're going to have a dramatic rise in guerrilla activity throughout the state of Kentucky, uh, targeted not only uh, against African-Americans, which is obviously uh, one of their main objectives, but also unionists as well, and to cause havoc throughout the state. And then mm -hmm. I'd mention one more thing. <laughs> Kentucky knew this was coming. You know, state leaders, they, they resisted this. They saw it coming, but they're like, they tried to compromise with the federal government as well. And they said this, okay, if you are going to enlist men, black men, you have to compensate them like you did when you wanted their labor to build roads and fortifications. And the army's like, all right, we can do that. They also said this, they cannot wear federal uniforms and they cannot be trained in the state of Kentucky because the sight of black men in uniform, like we can't have that, right? So can you believe that? And so the army was just like, oh, I don't know. By 1864, as I said, all chips were on the table and the army recruited against the protest of Kentuckians. So hmm. um, one of the reasons why there's this dramatic turn in kind of this sentiment, lost cause uh, sentiment in Kentucky, the memory of the war, right, is because of emancipation. That's how many Kentuckians were against emancipation. And so hmm. uh, let me give you a final thought here john yeah over 120,000 men served in the u.s military in kentucky during the civil war from kentucky including 23,000 black men okay i think the number is about 35,000 served in the confederacy so it's not very close right, right. but it was all about <clears throat> you know their sentiment their loyalty was hinged on emancipation and once emancipation happened 
kind of the floodgates opened, right? And this is what we have here today in many ways. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I mentioned one final thing. Yeah. <coughs> Sorry. <clears throat> you know, the, we talked about the 13th Amendment, you know, ratifying in December of 1865, you know, obviously ending slavery in the final two uh, across, this, across the country, but also especially Kentucky and Delaware. Kentucky did not ratify the 13th Amendment until 1976. Okay. Think about that. Wow. Right. It's insane. Right. Just to think yeah. about that. But yeah. that's I mean, it's it's really interesting, you know, how the war is remembered in Kentucky. And that's mm -hmm. one of the things that, you know, we uh, we contend with. That's and I've seen, I've seen it come up and chat about lost cause stuff as well. Uh, that's in the post-war period, what you brought up with with this, uh, it, it ignites this lost cause mentality after the Emancipation Proclamation, after the war, Reconstruction and such. Uh, with the numbers that you brought up, it's a lot like Maryland. And mm -hmm. you would think today that Maryland was a Confederate state. You know, like like I've I've actually met people who have said, yeah, it was a border state, but you know, three times as many people fought for the Confederacy as the federal army. And I'm like, no, it's actually almost the, the opposite. Right. <laughs> you know, when you when you look at the numbers. And it's like the the whole Reconstruction era, the the uh, implications of the lost cause narrative have changed our perceptions as who is who is fighting on whose side in, in greater numbers in these border states like Kentucky, like Maryland. Right. And as someone like me who has an ancestor who fought for the Union from Maryland, it was kind of like that was seen as almost the norm it, it, around that area. It's entirely flipped. And, and that's a great point that you bring up and one that is really interesting to me because Kentucky seems like it's no different. Yes, yeah, it's. it's so absolutely, John, that's such a great insight and, and point there. So I was talking about Burbridge, right? So the new book that came out is called like The Most Hated Man in Kentucky. And mm -hmm. the reason why he was vilified in the post-war press, including by former Confederate officers, believe it or not, who came back to Kentucky, right, was because of emancipation. He enforced emancipation. Okay, I mean, he enforced sorry, I mean, the enlistment of black soldiers, which led right. to their emancipation, right? And he also like went after Confederate guerrillas as well, right? And so, um, you know, the, the title of the book includes the lost cause as well, right? And it's got the lost cause in the memory of uh, General Stephen Burbridge, and it's very pertinent. And I thought it was, I thought his argument was was really it was str straight on because if you read the primary source material, you know, it's they wanted to get rid of him because he was enlisting black soldiers. Mm -hmm. which is really, really interesting. Right. And uh, I'll share one more thing, John, if, um, if people want to learn more about Camp Nelson from like a, a, a historian perspective or even academic perspective, um, there is a phenomenal book about camp, about actually black refugees going through these camps during the civil war. And John, I'm going to share it with you yep. uh, really quick. And if you could share it to um, the viewers here. Yeah. <clears throat> So Dr. Amy Taylor wrote the book called Embattled Freedom. It's like a journey through um, the Civil War's refugees, slave refugee camps. She actually dedicates an entire chapter to Camp Nelson. Um, and we're very fortunate, John, because she works at the University of Kentucky. So she's in go. Lexington right up the road from us. And some of her students have worked at our park. Um, and actually, she's going to be speaking at our winter lecture series in March. So obviously, oh, wow. we're thrilled to have her. Yes. 
But I, I think that's something, someone that we should connect with, John, and we should have her on your program as well. She's that she's fantastic. that incredible. So yeah, um, that'd be fantastic. I actually interviewed her for one of my ten minute interviews at the CWI Summer Conference a few years back when she came out with them. Oh right, right, yeah, okay. So it'd be great to actually have a long discussion and I, uh, you definitely know, her about that. That'd be fantastic. and then she's also you know she's ha she has her students working on. Um, Research related to some of the black soldiers that uh, were organized here, including, I think, the fifth and sixth U.S. Colored Cav. You know, um, there weren't many black cavalry units, but there was two of them that were here. And so, um, John, if there's no more questions, I mean, I'd love to. I mean, I, I'm free. So is there any more questions or comments? I'd love to. Um, uh, just people saying about how they 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 uh, they thank us for the great discussion. And uh, this was great. Uh, all, that, all good stuff. All good comments coming our way. So so please. Well, I appreciate that. Um, please uh, go and like our Facebook page. You know, we've got events on there. We've got um, a lot of really cool posts uh, about Camp Nelson. Everything I call it Civil War Kentucky, of course. Everything related to that. Uh, obviously, check out our website, my friends. There's a lot to, to learn there, and you have my email address as well. So, be happy to hear from any of you. If you've got any questions or comments, or if you're planning to come out to Kentucky and check out Camp Nelson, and love to show you around. So, you know, I'm at uh, you know services our name right so um i'm at their service sean and um right. as ever my friend I, I love you very much and i appreciate all you do and thanks for love having you, me on yeah i love you man and and i hope that i can get to kentucky soon uh i i haven't wanted to go to kentucky so bad in my life but now i want to now i want to hang out a while and right. and see the site and maybe do some live stuff there with you and yeah that would be great plug, um, plug some of the upcoming trails and all that good stuff yeah, I think it'd be cool if we can kind of keep people uh, updated about the the transformation of the park, you know, as yeah. we continue to develop new projects and install new things. I think people would, would really enjoy that. So, yeah, that'd be great. Um, that'd be great. Yeah, love you, man. Uh, whatever you yeah, need man. from me, just let me know, okay? Appreciate it. I appreciate everyone tuning in tonight, uh, watching Steve and I discuss this very, very important topic and this new site that everyone should go check out. I've placed links in the comment section. We have books in the comment section. We got it all rolling over here. Thank you to everybody on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Twitter for being with us tonight.